Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Gersimovich, PhD student in Russian lit. This week, I installed my own chandelier. It's a very cool <laughs> chandelier. Matt sent me photos. It's Thank you. Thank very you. aesthetic. It complements your bar cart. Just, it really has, <laughs> there's a continuity between the two. I really see it. Thank you. I, I picked it up myself. Well, with my girlfriend's <laughs> help. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Cameron Lalana. Uh, after many, many weeks of being good, I, I fell off the wagon and bought some more gear, which I don't necessarily need for this podcast, but mm-hmm. now I got a, a DB booster from my mic Heck yeah. because it's not, lo- it's not loud enough that there's actually any buzzing in my audio, but I currently have to turn my, my audio interface up to nine out of 10 notches to make this microphone work. So I figured I could probably use some help in that department. I can already hear it. I can hear those DBs being boosted. <laughs> This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be continuing our Summer of Anna Karenina series with part four of the aforementioned woo, woo. Anna Karenina. Yes, sir. We did it. The most exciting part. It could be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this week, we are eternally grateful for our newest patron, Brandon. If you're interested in helping out the show like Brandon, take a look at patreon.com slash We have a lot of fun Patreon-only content and rewards, and it really helps the show out. If you're not interested in Patreon, but you would prefer to support us in a more free way, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, thank you for the updates, but before we get into reading today, Matt, what are you drinking? All right, I know it's the the moment everybody's been waiting for. You thought I was going to bring a Jack and Coke to the podcast, you would be (laughs) sorely mistaken this particular week. Every other week, you would be right. <laughs> this week, I am drinking from Smiley Brothers here from my my town in Evanston. Uh, it's called Purple Line. It's a, <laughs> I don't know how to say it. It's a Hefeweizen uh, with hibiscus, blackberry, and blueberry. It's called Purple Line. It is actually purple. It's named after the, uh, the L line here. That is the Purple Line. It is perhaps one of my favorite beers I've ever had in my life. It is so good. So take that. <laughs> I, I think it's pronounced Hefeweizen. You know, you're probably right. But, you know, if they wanted me to pronounce it that way, they should have spelled it that way. So <laughs> take that, Germany. <laughs> what, are you, what are you drinking today? I am drinking this one. It's not a porter or a stout, but I am still super excited for it. It is the Honey Blonde Ale from Three Mile Brewing. Now, Three Mile Brewing is probably one of my favorite breweries from, from the town of where I live, which I will not specify, but I just gave it away. Uh, I was actually just at this brewery the the other night, a few nights ago, enjoying this out on the street. And every time I go to this place, I always pick up some Honey Blonde Ale. So I'm I'm excited to have a beer, which is both very good and also one I actually just really enjoy when I when I go out myself on the podcast. It's a very easy, easy drinking ale, nice and, and light and very sweet. Well, not very mildly sweet, but enough. All right, look at this go. Just a couple pros drinking some beers. Just some boys drinking some local brews. Just some local brew boys. That should be that should be our the name of our podcast once we pivot. Uh, uh, yeah, it is going to be, and we're we're going to be pivoting very soon <laughs> to probably becoming a local beer podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of boys drinking local brews, <laughs> part four of Anna Karenina. Speaking of the opposite of that, <laughs> so I, I got to be honest with you, Matt. I think after writing part three of Anna Karenina, Tolstoy showed that to some people and got very negative feedback on all the farming. (laughs) And then he got really mad at all of his editors and said, 
you think farming is boring? Oh, I will show you how boring I can write. <laughs> and then he wrote an entire part of Alexei Karenin and his committees. This is how, okay, this is how I know no one's ever actually read the entire book of Anna Karenina yeah. because nobody that I talk to complains about Karenin. Um, so I'm, my theory is actually that you're right. And people get so bored reading the Levin stuff that they skip over this part almost entirely. <laughs> That's why we never hear about it. All we hear about is light and shadow. Well, well. Here's the shadow committees. What about Karenin's legislation? What about it? <laughs> we have to hear about how his review of the native populations of maybe Siberia, is, are, are, how it's doing. How is it doing? Well, we won't know. Not good. Yeah, not good. <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't know that if you skip this part, like like we believe a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. Almost certain. You listener <laughs> there, I know you're guilty of this. <laughs> so, as we've alluded to, part four opens up on the new, let's call it the new norm of the Karenin household. The new which normal. Which is the new... <laughs> yeah, the new normal of the Karenin household. Currently, the Karenins are still living together, Anna is still seeing Vronsky, but she is just not seeing Vronsky in her house, which uh, Tolstoy notes is a proposition of misery for all three. Alexei hoped that, quote, this passion would pass as everything does pass, that everyone would forget about it and that his name would remain unsullied. So he's dealing with this in top tier emotional ways. Um, I do. I mean, I do hate to be this guy, but I feel like everyone loves to, to judge Karenin. However, I would say most of us solve our problems. Maybe not this kind of problem, but in this exact same way. Just, you know, it'll blow over. Yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> just just leave it. It'll, it'll get better. That is that is <laughs> actually very fair. Yeah. That's, that, that is a very biting criticism of me as a person, and <laughs> I, I accept it. But yes, so we, we rejoin them. They're going about their daily life. And as we drop into the action, Vronsky is currently showing around a foreign prince. And this foreign prince has been all over the world and seen all kinds of things and, and just kills a lot of things wherever he goes. Uh, animals, not people, although I think you could read in between the lines and say maybe he kills people in certain places too, but sure. it's not said explicitly. He did kill 200 pheasants in England for a bet, which I would like to know how that came about. I don't, I don't even know what kind of boasting leads into, I bet you can't kill 200 animals to which the other person responds bet and gets their gun <laughs> but hey it's england who knows after this dignitary leaves Fronsky is just tired and anna sends him a message and says hey i know the one rule we have is that you don't come over here but karenin's going to committee tonight come over and Fronsky is like recognizing that he and the prince are somewhat the same even though he hates the prince says bet uh, but before he goes he falls asleep and dreams about an old peasant speaking in french which yeah quite the nightmare and then goes at like nine o'clock and he's so late that in fact Karenin is back from committee and they run into each other when he's going into the Karenin's household and they just awkwardly kind of bow to each other before <laughs> going about their merry ways. <laughs> Vronsky talks to Anna for a little bit. Uh, she has attacks of jealousy um, over I, I don't know what this says in, in your version, but she says something about the orgy he goes to, and I can't imagine they mean that in the sense that I'm thinking. Oh, uh, I, no, I, think I think they do. I think she's jealous that he's off with the uh, the foreign dignitary. I think she's being... I, I don't think it's, it was actually at an orgy. I think she was just like... Okay, just... Not making it up, but like, uh, you know, just was angry and, you know, how we do. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> so they, they kind of argue before 
going to make fun of Corinne, obviously. And finally, Anna says to him, well, you know what? It's fine. This isn't really a big deal anyway, because I'm going to die soon. I had a dream about a French peasant talking this phrase over and over again. And when I asked someone what it meant, they said, it means you're going to die. And she says, so I'm going to die in childbirth. And Vronsky says, that's ridiculous. And, you know, setting us up for some, some foreshadowing, which will be resolved within this very part. Spoiler alerts, uh, Anna <laughs> dies. Uh, <laughs> no, she doesn't. Not in part four, at least. Um, <laughs> at this point, Alexei returns home. Vronsky's gone, and he argues with Anna, you know, kind of understandably. And he says to her, you know what? We're getting a divorce. You couldn't even not see Vronsky. That's all I asked. And I'm going to take your son. And, and she begs to at least not take Suryoja. Take everything else, but not Suryoja. And... Uh, and she says to him, you don't even care for Seriosha. Karenin says, yes, I have lost even my affection for my son because he is associated with, with the revulsion I feel for you. But still, I shall take him. Goodbye. And he takes off. So uh, Karenin's in full full dick mode and goes to see a lawyer about uh, divorcing his wife. And that goes on for so long, going over the intricacies of of case law regarding divorce. I wasn't kidding. I mean, neither of us were kidding about how much this is just about policy, this part. I don't hate it. I actually I actually thought this was a more exciting chapter as a whole. Well, because of what's about to happen. I actually feel like this is kind of maybe not like the climax of the book, but it's it's definitely on the up and up. You definitely get some action because you were lulled into passivity with the farming like a fool. And then <laughs> and then there's some some actual action that happens. But in a little bit, because before that we have a long consultation with the divorce lawyer. And then a long time going over Alexei's problems in, in court. Uh, in fact, it, it's been so difficult because his opponent has pretended to come over to his side. And then while pretending to support Karenin, he actually overstates it to the point that Karenin's point sounds ridiculous. And then everyone starts making fun of it. And at this point, Alexei has to pick up the pieces, which actually I think that was a really fun little bit of political intrigue to have in here. Yeah, well, maybe. I think Tolstoy is mostly mocking well, I don't want to say he's mocking people who think politics are important, but he, well, he is. I think he is. I think he is too, but it is also, it's an unusually relevant example of the, like how backroom, you know, the, the meat grinder of politics just happens. I mean, dude's got like 900 pages to fill, so you're going to get some backroom <laughs> meat grinder action, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm all about the backroom meat grinder. <laughs> <laughs> but the important thing here is that Corinne has to pick up the pieces of this this affair so he has to go to talk to the the people who they set up a committee to investigate himself to figure out what's going on and these people uh foolishly thinking that this will be to their benefit uh come to tell him the truth in moscow which he does not care for because some of the things of the truth actually support his opponent's position which are problematic but that's beside the point because what's really important is while karen is in moscow he runs into steva Steva, who has just abandoned his wife and children uh, as they try to buy coats without any money. <laughs> classic Steva content. Classic Steva. I, you sh like you, honestly, you should hate him, but I kind of love Steva. He's just such relentlessly a dick that it's hard, it's hard not to respect the, the grind of being that, that consistent in his personality. Every given moment, he's always doing something that's just terrible yeah 100 percent. and then he essentially invites corinne in to dinner well actually he says he's going to come over the next day and invite him to dinner but really this is the short way of saying he invites him to dinner 
although it actually, the question happens tomorrow just because, again, there are 900 pages to fill. This has to just be drawn out. And we follow Steva around for the rest of the day as he begins to invite more people to this dinner that he's having. Of course, Levin, after some time abroad, I think it's probably been like maybe the better part of a year since part three. Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, he invites Levin, who's who's just come back to, to Moscow, to, to dinner, as well as some other people, Levin's brother, uh, the the liberal friend, uh, Sviashki, who Le- Levin met with in part three. And, and, you know, of course, along the way of inviting everyone, he has to stop to see his his new mistress, a, a, a dancer uh, from the Bolshoi, naturally. He's got that good, good forest money, which he's mm-hmm. not fully spent yet, Tolstoy notes. And he goes around and that's that's how his day goes. We can go ahead and fast forward to the dinner, which, as you might imagine, is a little awkward. It's noted that none of these people have much connection to each other. You have, of course, the sort of intellectuals with Sviashki and a friend friend of Sviashki's, Levin, who's the friend of Siva, uh, Alexei, who's the government official, and, and as well as Kitty and Darya. No one's really certain why they're there until Steva shows up, and of course Steva does what Steva does, and he casts his his charismatic spell on them, and everyone starts having a great time. The intellectuals start chatting about about land and what the mark of advanced civilizations are, and the people who aren't quite certain why they're there start just having fun, and of course Levin gets paired off with with Kitty accidentally. Although of course before we get to that point, we have to have several pages about what the mark of an advanced civilization is. Naturally, of uh, this is, of course, the 19th century, the question of the advanced civilization comes around to the question of women's rights and women's education. So a great debate happens among well, all the men, obviously. <laughs> Why would you ever include anyone else in that conversation? To which Levin is, Levin is trying to get involved until Kitty says something, and then he immediately backs down and is like, yeah, Kitty's right. Um, <laughs> and they, you know, seeing that she's kind of open to conversation, they go off to another room to start chatting while Alexei continues the very important conversation about women's rights with a bunch of other men. At this point, Levin and Kitty have a very important moment as they're they're chatting about things. And right before Levin leaves, Kitty begins to to play with some chalk and she is writing something and he kind of takes it from her and says, hey, look at this. And he writes down uh, a series of of letters, just letters. and, And the game is to figure out what each letter stands for to figure out the sentence. This continues on for a while. It's a very slow game, as you might imagine. They both come to understand that what they're really talking about is what happened one, maybe two years ago now. I'm not actually certain of the, the time frame here. It's been at least it's a year. about that, yeah. Okay. He asks her, or she says, hey, can you forgive me? Uh, you know, I, I don't think I made the right choice then. And he says, you know, there's nothing to forgive. And then finally, he writes out what Tolstoy describes as a three-letter word, sorry, as a three-word sentence, and Kitty says, yes. Uh, and I'm trying to guess what he wrote out here, because I'm assuming, I I should have taken the time to look up, I actually don't know how to say, will you marry me in Russian, for obvious reasons. Uh, actually, maybe not, I, I've never needed to know that, but I assume that's what he writes out, but it doesn't, is not made clear, and it certainly isn't three words in English. But he does it. But he does it. The absolute mad lad. <laughs> the absolute mad lad. And off to the side, less fun, Daria and Karenin are having a conversation about Anna. Anna, of course, is a hot topic at this point. And Karenin discloses his desire to divorce Anna to Daria. Daria predictably reacts with horror. She loves Anna. 
Anna couldn't possibly have done this until Corinne says, no, she definitely did. And this is the only thing I can do. And Daria says, hey, you know, when I was in the same place you were, when Steva, I found out, was cheating on me relentlessly at that point, I felt like I couldn't come back to this marriage, but Anna convinced me to come back, and maybe you should extend her the same grace. And Crennan says, <laughs> LOL, no, <laughs> and leaves. I gotta, you know, I don't really know if this is supported in the text, so I don't really know how much value this comment is, but I, part of the reason I think that she can't convince Corrin is in one part because Corrin is not really convincible at this point, but also in a second part because I don't really think she believes what she's saying. If I had heard that right after Anna had, had convinced her, really not that long after she had convinced her to stay in her marriage, which is at this point right back to normal. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that's got to not feel great. No, 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 no. I would fully believe that, though. I'm actually kind of behind that interpretation of events. All right. Yes, sir. We did it. <laughs> we did it. We came to an agreement finally on something. Yeah, I mean, Anna's kind of like a a parallel plot line to that, like a what if sort of situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to talk about it later in the book. Yeah, we'll examine it more. Wink, wink. <laughs> so from here on out, Levin is just over the moon. And at one point during the party, he says something bad about one of the other attendees and... Kitty says, hey, don't say anything bad about him. He may be kind of a bore, but he's a really good dude. When Daria's kids had, uh, when, what's her, wait, not, I, I saw her Dolly. only referred to as Daria and this, Dolly, thank you. When Dolly's kids had scarlet fever, he came over to hang out with us and saw that we needed help, and he just stayed for three weeks, which, God, good to be Russian royalty or whatever this guy is who can just... Dude, I would hate if someone came to visit me and then stayed for three weeks. That is the <laughs> worst case scenario. <laughs> well, yeah, but if you had like five kids with scarlet fever and Steve-O wasn't helping you at all. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Also, if I had a giant house yeah. and not a thousand square feet, maybe that would be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that probably makes a huge difference. Alas. Not living in three rooms. Subscribe to our subscribe to our Patreon so I can become uh, so I can become nobility <laughs> and uh, buy a Russian literature mansion. Subscribe so we can work on getting Matt knighted. I don't I don't yeah. well, I don't think they have any comparable system in Russian anymore. <laughs> but I still want the mansion. That's fair. Well, subscribe so we can do a revolution in Russia, reinstate the monarchy, and Matt can become a, a you know a local landlord <laughs> in Petersburg. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> From that. What Levin takes away is actually everybody's good all the time. And he spends the next day before he goes to see Kitty and her parents just thinking good things. He goes with his brother to his brother's committee. And even though everyone's arguing, he says he couldn't help but see the goodness in all of them. And he tries to keep up the night clerk in the hotel he's at just trying to chat because the night clerk's a good guy. He's, he's just having a great time of it. And you might think, oh, this is going to get crushed when he goes to see Kitty's parents. But no, no, when he goes to see them, they're all ecstatic and Kitty's ecstatic, and the teachers are ecstatic, and everyone's super happy about this. I'm sure to some large degree this is just Tolstoy kind of kind of poking fun at, at being in love, but the way people act does seem to support it, at least them generally supporting the union more than not in the text. I actually, I don't think he's poking fun at people being in love. I think he's actually detailing the cycle of love. He's mm. literally pointing out what we refer to as the honeymoon phase at this point. And it doesn't it doesn't get crushed in the way that some things get crushed in the story where it's like an all at once. Mm. I mean, later they go through the normal like marital troubles, I guess, <laughs> or whatever you would call it, like just the adjustment period of like living with someone and whatnot. 
especially when at least you know in our time the well at least in our time where we are the honeymoon period is over the course of some weeks to months as you're dating someone before you know that all comes crashing down uh but right. they're they've just gotten they've just gone from not seeing each other for a year to i guess we're married now so i would say it's probably a bit more <laughs> a bit more extreme yeah but this is where we leave levin for now and we rejoin karenin who has just gotten a letter from anna telling him hey i'm dying and he internally thinks oh perfect this solves all my problems <laughs> <laughs> oh alexi <laughs> oh alexi and she begs him to come so she can forgive uh or she can apologize to him and he says you know what either she's being honest and you know i'd rather go than not or she's not being honest in which case you know i can just leave so he does and it turns out she is dying and she invites both alexi and alexi karenin and vronsky into the room and begs them to respect each other and you know, hold each other's hands and, and kiss and not, they don't actually kiss. I was kind of, I remembered that. I like, I think I had a false memory from the movie where she makes them kiss. <laughs> I don't remember what movie that's in. It's possible. <laughs> Maybe it's from a fan fiction, but I mean, that's like, <laughs> not like, not like fan fiction kiss, but in the, you know, Eastern European thing where you kiss to like, to greet each other kind of thing. But sure. That's a side point. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get to remove all of that. Uh, <laughs> I see. I felt like this scene was kind of like the turning point of the book. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Probably. It, this is just such an interesting scene to me. If we can discuss a little bit later. Yes, I would love to because I think I think you're very right that this is a pivotal moment because this is the moment where Karenin. Ha well, what happens to Karenin is something he later describes as a mistake, not derisively, but as something he didn't expect to happen. Because in this moment, Karenin truly forgives. Anna and realizes that he needs to change just everything about how he's been handling the situation. So he goes out, he takes Vronsky out after she kind of needs to see a doctor and she gets a little worse and they chat and he basically tells Vronsky, everything's cool between us. You know, I, I can't hold any hate in my heart for, for Anna. I, I only want the best for her at this point. Vronsky is like so cowed by how by by Alexei's just total change in character that he goes home and, and thinks about how there's no longer any place for him with Anna and then shoots himself. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about how um, Joe Wright didn't put this in the adaptation that we watched, the 2012 adaptation, because yes. he didn't think it was believable? I, I'm sorry, did you write Anna Karenina? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how hot their emotions run? That's like this entire book. Yeah, I mean, dude hasn't seen this girl in a year, and he proposes by writing three letters in chalk. Are you kidding me? And you, th <laughs> you thought this was the not believable part. Well, no, no. What Joe Wright did instead in the movie is that he makes them do that same game, but with blocks, which is yeah, far less believable. <laughs> Joe Wright, come on this podcast and we can discuss, please. <laughs> Joe Wright, come fight us in a parking lot. <laughs> One or the other. <laughs> well. But yes, uh, although... Vronsky shoots himself in the heart and he misses and even through the utter incompetence of his of one of the servants who takes a full hour finding a doctor which I guess you know it, for the time period it makes sense but he just freaks out it's noted and leaves him bleeding there for half an hour so frankly shocking that Vronsky survives maybe that's the unbelievable part that you could shoot yourself in the heart and be left alone for a half hour to bleed out and then get treatment by a Russian doctor in like the 1880s and still survive <laughs> 
It's possible. Apparently. <laughs> Apparently. And as the scene kind of draws to a close, Karenin takes care of Anna's affairs. He takes care of Sir Yosha, who he's suddenly found a newfound love for. He takes care of Anna's daughter, who is also named Anna, and he just absolutely falls in love with this child. And he even notes that this period, he knows that he can't last forever. And in fact, he feels the real-life strains kind of threatening to push themselves back onto him. But he just feels so different and so much better taking care of everyone that he, he d resists going back. But of course, the world comes in anyway. Eventually, Steva shows up to play kind of a, almost a parallel role that Anna played. Well, well, actually, kind of an opposite role that Anna played at the beginning of the book between Steva and Dolly. And he's there to help Anna as she has now actually gotten past her sickness and seems to probably, it, it's probably she's going to live, which puts everyone in kind of an awkward spot. Because <laughs> they were all really expecting it. And Oops. now no one knows what to do. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Um, Krennin is now and like, I don't... that's what we call a real light and shadow moment, I tell you. <laughs> Krennin now just feels terrible for how he acted before and hoping that she would die. Vronsky is confused about what he should do, and he gets offered a promotion to Tashkent, and he's like, do I take it this time? I turned it down. Maybe I should just go and leave him behind. And Anna is like, well, just like incoherent screaming, what do I do? And Steva shows up to solve it the Steve away and basically tells uh, Krennin who... Krennin was like, hey, Anna, whatever you want, it's totally cool. I, I will support you in it. Steva is like, what if that was divorce? And Krennin thinks, hmm, I'm going to expose her to just a lot of difficulties if I do that. But, uh, you know, you're her brother, I guess. And he kind of, he offers it to Anna. But Vronsky, upon returning, says, hey, let's go to Italy after he recovers. And she says yes. And she and Vronsky leave Seryozha and Anna with Karenin. And they turn down his offer of a divorce, leaving everyone in kind of a limbo, despite Steva's admirable job at trying to get his at trying to get his brother-in-law to divorce his sister. Admirable in air quotes. Even he walks into that room thinking maybe this is the wrong maybe this is the wrong call for me to make. But that that is part part four of Anna Karenina. A lot of committee stuff, which I actually think is kind of fun. And well, actually some of the most important things of the book. It's real light and shadow of themes to have in a, in a part. Real light and shadow. That's what I always say. <laughs> That's what you got to expect when you come to Anna Karenina. <laughs> You're going to see how life is really made. <laughs> but yes, how Matt, when we talked about this beforehand, you expressed to me that you think that this, and you've also expressed it in the podcast today, this is one of the most important parts of Anna Karenina as a whole. Can you elaborate on that? I can a little bit because I only have a little bit of time. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is probably one that has, I mean, I know like several people in my department that have worked or are currently working on this particular scene from this book. Like it's probably one of the most memorable ones, having read the book, trying to parse like what is happening in the scene. And it really kind of depends on how you view Anna, how you view Karenin, how you view what Tolstoy is trying to do. I have my own particular interpretation Honestly, there are like multiple valid ones. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that mine's the right one. It is, but I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> um, so there's, I mean, th there's literally so many angles to approach it from. Uh, but the, the first one is, I, I think, Karenin's forgiveness. Tolstoy is playing with this general theme of forgiveness that runs through the whole book. Forgiveness, vengeance, these are major themes for this work. Hence, the epigraph, vengeance is mine, I will repay, kind of sets you up to know there's going to be this sort of dichotomy 
throughout this uh, between vengeance and forgiveness. But why does Karenin forgive? Does he really forgive? What's the deal with Karenin? <laughs> um, <laughs> and a lot of people have written on it. Some people think that he actually does experience this true moment of Christian forgiveness. Um, uh, some people believe, you know, everyone's being genuine in this moment. Anna's being really, you know, you know, genuine. This being closer to death is bringing them all together. Uh, some people are really cynical. Some people believe, you know, Anna is actually this is her her falsest moment. She's actually she's acting. She's not really, uh, you know, she's not really being truthful. This is just an, another one of her facades that she puts on throughout the book. I don't have an opinion on every aspect of this, but what I, I do think is happening that is really important to watch, especially with War and Peace, is Tolstoy loves to write cyclically. He likes to bring people up to a high point and then bring them down. And I think that's what he does for Karenin, because I think this is a high point for Karenin uh, forgiving, but he does, he, you know, kind of plant seeds of of what is to come because Karenin does go through a really downward spiral. And I think by the end of the book, I don't think he really feel very much sympathy for Karenin. At least I, I don't see how, how you could. He gets really kind of twisted by the end of the book. Uh, and so that that's something for me. I like to watch the cycles uh, of characters in Tolstoy. Uh, particularly, it seems to me that the higher Tolstoy brings someone up, the harder they fall, uh, which sounds kind of cliche, but it, it's, it's really big and more in peace. And having read that and then coming back to this, I'm kind of like, eh, you know, I can see where he's doing that. Uh, where anytime someone thinks they've got life just figured out, absolutely not. You know, like, you know, like three parts from now, he's going to like call back to the bat and be like, just, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, <laughs> this character's horrifically depressed now. Uh, <laughs> so that's kind of my small toe dip into an interpretation of that scene. I, I do think that's interesting because as we've discussed before, not so directly, this is this is kind of like the long arc of how Levin's storyline goes, is that he's kind of having that oscillating up and down of, uh, you know, I've figured it out, I, I've solved the labor problem for the world over, and then he remembers Kitty exists, and he spirals again for hundreds and hundreds of pages. <laughs> and of course, in this part, he's feeling great, better than anyone, anyone ever does in this book, maybe, and I am including early days Anna and Fronsky, mm -hmm. if only because they don't get five straight pages of, of loving life. So I can naturally assume that that is going to, well, come crashing down as 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 time goes on, mm -hmm. if only because it's, it, well, this is Tolstoy and he's having fun. Yeah, I feel like this is kind of the the scene where, or not the scene, but the part where people achieve a lot of what has been set up in the first half or so of the book, and now so you you have kind of this big setup and people. To me, this is why I actually feel like there's a lot that happened in this part. With the exception of the committee talk, I really do think, I mean, you get finally after just years of 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 Levin keeping you on the edge of your seat, will he or won't he, uh, finally proposing Anna, the, the childbirth, the kind of the prophesizing, if you will. That's there's just there's so much in this part. And then so I think the, the next half of the book is really you're seeing the effects of mm. of that. And. and I think it's important to keep in mind, I ascribe to this view because I think Tolstoy did know what, what he was doing in, in a lot of this when he referred to his, his own work as a labyrinth of plots. Most of the plot lines don't ever really intersect in any like meaningful ways physically, but they all share really important common themes. Uh, for me, 
looking at the cycles, that's one way that I tend to find this relationship of themes, how they go up and down and up and down and mm-hmm. the kind of diverging plot lines, seemingly diverging plot lines. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's my thing. With the obvious exception of Steva, who <laughs> never deviates from the median of being kind of a shitty person. Yeah, Steva's fun because he's truly the worst character in the book, and yet nobody seems to dislike him even as from like the reader standpoint. Yeah. I okay. I, I just want to quickly go over a few of the things he does when he goes to see his sister after she almost died, also had a baby, also yeah. maybe reconciled with her with her husband. Mm-hmm. So he he comes to her house fresh out of and keep in mind, they don't live in the same city, so we had to come to Petersburg to do this. He goes first to go get some oysters. <laughs> then he comes to his dying sister's place. Well, were they fresh? They were fresh. Yeah, so, see, that's kind of the thing. I feel like you're is... giving him a lot of... You gotta come with some slack. I mean, what's the guy supposed to do with some fresh oysters? That's true. I was holding that back. That was a little mm-hmm. unfair of me to mention that they're A little fresh. bit unfair, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is when Princess Betsy Tverskaya is leaving, one of Anna's older friends, and he chats and he like he tries to get her to stay, including, you know, really pulling her back into conversation, kissing her. It's noted directly above where her pulse is, and on her arm, not on her neck. Uh, <laughs> um, even at some point, it says when she finally is like leaving, he says some things to her, which she didn't know whether to laugh or cry at. So. What a series of events to do before you go see your dying sister who has just yeah. had a baby. Yeah. Classic Steva content. Classic Steva. <laughs> I, I don't know why people don't dislike him more. <laughs> He's You're obviously supposed to, but it's it's just hard. He's just like walking on water being just the worst person in the book. It is entirely untouched so far. <laughs> I feel like Steva's actually like that impression of Steva is what you get when you don't look critically at the narrator. Mm. it's like i think there are definitely some points where the narrator could be harsher on steva but instead kind of presents him in a way as others see him Mm -hmm. and if you just accept at face value that the narrator is telling you the truth at every moment in the story you are gonna miss a lot of the story (laughs) (laughs) that's fair that is very fair um i think that's an important nugget of truth yeah yeah because, God, he is the worst. <laughs> God, yeah, he just, yeah, he never, mm. the only moment of self-awareness I think he has had so far, maybe ever will had, is the part where he goes to get uh, Corinne to divorce Anna. And that's, he just has like an inkling that maybe this is the wrong thing, which mm-hmm. I guess Corinne realizes once he kind of goes goes over all the ways that she will be exposed legally <laughs> and, and, and will be kind of, left a little bit destitute by not having ties to him due to yeah. if, if they go through this divorce and what that means for her. Yeah, the divorce proceedings are a lot. Yeah. So I feel like you missed the most important biographical nugget, autobiographical <laughs> nugget of the whole okay. story. The funniest one, the best one, yes. is the journals. I The moment you said that, I yep. remembered what I left out of the summary. Mm-hmm. After 11... This is after he proposes, right? After yeah, Kitty's the next accepted. Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he he brings over the journals that he's been keeping uh, so that she can read them in full disclosure and know what she's getting into, which is something Tolstoy did with his own wife, and the journals basically detail all the sex that he's had. Uh, <laughs> and, and, well, they detail a lot of things, but that includes all the sex that he's had prior to marriage, and, and Kitty acts in a similar way. 
to his own wife, which is upset, but I guess forgiving <laughs> enough to get married. I mean, I don't know what else you're going to do with your kitty at this point. You're in too deep. You're in too deep. Yeah. It's kind of like what Dolly pointed out in part three, that you're kind of you're kind of at the mercy of whoever of whoever proposes to you who your parents approve of and standing seems good enough that, you know, they're not going to financially ruin you and leave you destitute in your later years. Yeah. So he doesn't seem like he's going to leave her destitute, but he did just give her a bunch of journals detailing all his sex, all the sex in his life, which is not a good sign, I will say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that was my... <laughs> I don't know if that was important, but I thought that was funny. <laughs> I, it, it, I don't know if it's important either, but it is extremely, extremely funny. Mm-hmm. I, guess I feel like sometimes you see things and you're like, wow, that was a really weird detail to me include. And you're like, oh my gosh, that was something Tolstoy himself did. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it really feels like something that he had to include because Levin is his character avatar. Because for mm-hmm. Levin, that's so out of character. <laughs> For, I mean, I guess we don't see his student days, but the whole way he's been set up so far, this detail is just so out of character. But it makes so much more sense when you realize Levin is Tolstoy avatar. Tolstoy did this, so obviously <laughs> Levin has to do this now. That's right. I did want to ask you a little bit off topic of of the greatest part of this book. <laughs> do you what do you draw away from Steva's dinner scene? Because I don't know, it was just a scene in passing, just a moment for some character development, but we do have sort of this weird collection of characters from throughout the plot. Obviously, we have Karenin and, and Dolly and Kitty and Levin, but we also have Spiazhki, the hypocritical liberal. Uh, we have, you know, the prince. We have uh, many other people who've been playing in and out of the plot, and this is one of the few times where they are all together instead of, like, meeting each other one at a time, really. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you drew anything in particular out of out of just kind of their interactions. I, I think that this, for some characters, it's a do-over. Like, for Levin and Kitty, they get their do-over. Uh, I think for other characters, it's a direct parallel between Dolly and Grennan that is literally asking you to look back to, like, the first scene of the book and compare and contrast. That's literally all he's asking you to do. Uh, it's such an important thing uh, to consider, especially going forward, kind of what makes a happy marriage and what doesn't. And, well, <laughs> we'll see if that question's really ever answered. I don't know that I think it is. I think Tolstoy thinks he's got to figure it out, but, I, you know, <laughs> we'll right. see. Tolstoy thinks he's got a lot of things figured out. Right, right. I also want to point out that at, at some point, um, Steva just pauses the party to feel up Levin, he just mm-hmm. like grabs his arms and it goes on for a little while about how muscular Levin is. And he just yells, what biceps? A great Samson. <laughs> <laughs> now, you don't need to draw something from everything in the book, Hilly. No, I, I drew nothing from that. That was just... <laughs> That's fine. Good detail. Thank you for bringing it in. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just... Thinking, I mean, this has to come from a, like a real detail because I like I know people who are not like not as bad as Steva, but at parties, yeah, yeah. Like, that's just kind of the thing they would do. This feels like a detail they pulled in from his life at some point that they just like met someone who was athletic and someone else just started like feeling like a muscle. Like, hey, everyone, this dude has some muscles. Feel this. <laughs> come over. Come on. Come on. No, feel it. Really feel it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> no well that actually kind of leads into the plot where alexi karenin says oh well, i guess you need a great strength to kill a bear because also side note levin kills a bear at some point surprise and then levin quite uh you know never one to take a compliment says 
Not at all. On the contrary, a child can kill a bear, which I don't <laughs> think is true. But that comment leads into Kitty trying to like talking about him about the bear thing, which leads into their conversation. But you can just tell this man's about to make a great father. <laughs> no, go on, kill the bear. <laughs> just putting like a, like a giant breech loading rifle into like his five year old's hands. No, see, like you, you don't need any, any muscles at all. It's super easy. <laughs> Come on, even Lochka, you can do it. <laughs> I'd be terrified. Actually, something I do want to mention, and this isn't as intellectual as many of the things you've been bringing up. After it's become apparent that Anna is not going to die, she has a lot of conversations with people. And one of the things that kind of just impressed me about it is that there's, she's, I mean, obviously confused. And in one regard, this is almost, I imagine, frustrating. And especially it's frustrating in in the book for characters like Corinne, who or basically like, Anna, what do you want? And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> but that's one of the things that I just really love about the way Car- um, Tolstoy is characterizing these people is that Anna was fully expecting, or at least apparently, if we were to believe the narrator, expecting to die and kind of thinking, this is going to solve a lot of my problems. But now she has to live and she's got to look forward and, and think, what do I do now? Because she's at least says to people that, she has a lot of admiration for Lexi, and she almost feels ashamed now, especially with the way that he has, at least in this part, turned over a new leaf. And she really does not know what to do going forward. And that's why I think that I really enjoyed that about her as a character, because it feels real. Because in plot lines, you've got to go somewhere, and you know, usually you've got only so many pages, so you can only have so much waffling about. But the advantage of Tolstoy truly not giving a shit about what he wanted, he sees totally okay to have characters waffle about for dozens and dozens, <laughs> if not hundreds of pages which is to the some of the things you pointed out previously about kind of his a little some unconventional techniques and even sometimes some techniques which make for a frustrating book but good characterization mm-hmm. I, I do enjoy that just as as a read where she has just so many conversations where she can't express what she wants and she's got conflicting views of Alexei and she can't Alexei frankly both Vronsky and Karenin and, and can't reconcile those at all because there's just such a strange mass of broiling emotion which sometimes that happens that that's how it goes especially in difficult situations like this one yeah that's a tough one <laughs> i i don't know what to make of it because i don't think it's really intentional because I don't, I don't know if karen really has it in him but the only thing that he could do that would put anna in like the worst possible situation i actually do think is to forgive her mm. because that's like a, an emotional load that she cannot bear if he would agree to a divorce and go through those proceedings, it would be bad, but it would be over. The forgiveness right. is actually worse from the way I see it. Now, I just don't think Karenin has it enough to really, you know, plot this out so far in advance. He's just like, I, I mean, like, if anyone's the puppet master in this love triangle, it's definitely Anna. Fransky yeah. sucks. Fransky does absolutely <laughs> nothing. Um, uh, and, and Karenin is just, just not that into it. Deuce is old. Dude's just trying to get some owns in on his political opponents. Dude's just got to pass some legislation. He's got to hear about, <laughs> you know, everyone's got to be talking about his legislation. <laughs> as, as this has aptly demonstrated to us, he truly does not care about the people he is passing legislation about. No. He just cares about winning. <laughs> right. No one does, but he is among <laughs> their number. That's kind of the end of what we had wanted to cover. If you're reading along with us, go back, reread the death scene. 
well, it's not a death scene. Go back and reread the birth scene. Reread the the death birth scene. Think about it some more. Uh, the dearth our, scene. The dearth scene. Join our Discord. Let us know what you think, because I'm, I'm curious what other people are, are thinking about this as well. But before we totally wrap up, I'm curious, Cameron, on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? Uh, maybe it's uh, because I've had a lot of water today, or maybe it's because my body has just gotten so used to drinking Honey Blonde Ale that it no longer <laughs> affects me. But I'm only about uh, at, a, at a maybe a four. Hmm. Uh, not too bad enough to carry on this very heady conversation mm-hmm. how about you Matt where are you I think I made it up around a six which is more than I thought that hibiscus beer would take me but <laughs> mm, it's good that's good that's great it's getting you there maybe it's the fuel from dunking on Joe Wright but I don't know, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. we're still running off the high of inviting Joe Wright to fight us <laughs> well, do you think Joe Wright would win in a fight hold on I have, let me look up Joe, a picture of Joe Wright Dude, I just know neither of us would win in a fight against anyone uh how, wait, how tall is he? We might win against this guy. <laughs> why is this not? Why is this not Wikipedia information? That's very important for people, for people who want to fight him. Tweet him. Okay. Well, I don't know how tall he is, so I don't know if we have any advantages advantages over him because we're both kind of tall and lanky. Mm-hmm. Oh, IMDb is coming through five nine. We could do it. I think it's, it's possible. possible. He doesn't look that. He doesn't look that <laughs> jacked, but he it could be hidden by the jacket. I don't know. Mm, okay. We'll we'll see how that develops with the, over the course of our podcast. Join our Discord, let us know who would win. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, <laughs> that having all been said, maybe I need to bump myself up like two more points. That having all been said, <laughs> what are we reading next week, Matt? Next week we are going to be reading uh, some selections from One Soldier's War by Arkady Babchenko. It's going to be a depressing one, I'm pretty sure. So it is. Strap in. <laughs> Uh, I'm super excited to talk about that. That was probably one of the first really influential books in my life. So right. I, I am very excited to cover it. Okay. Well, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We got so many now. We got Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting isn't free, and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.